The following is a Barrett Sports Media production. Every sports media star has a story. From the highs... We are number one. We just grabbed every key demographic. <laughs> to the lows. You're fire! The path to success is always different. To help you learn more about the industry's top broadcasters, Barrett Sports Media brings you the Sports Talkers Podcast. Now, here's your host, Stephen Strong. Are you starting to feel it? Are you starting to look at when that fantasy draft is or dreaming about your team's schedule with a 3-0 start? Are you starting to feel it with the preseason? Because it's almost here. It's almost football season. Welcome into the Sports Talkers Podcast. Stephen Strong here. Great to have you in. In today's episode, we take a trip with the Jets radio voice, Bob Wachuse. Bob also broadcasts college football and hockey for ESPN. We hear his story, how he fell in love with sports radio, the journey to Boston College, sharing a classroom with ESPN's Book Shambi and Joe Tessitore, interning at multiple stations, his first break, and you want to hear his first break because it is a funny one. Corvallis for broadcasters, and what makes his partner Dan Orlowski such a talented and likable broadcaster? Dan has had this rise to stardom uh, at ESPN with NFL Live and First Take. So enough of my voice. Let's hear the voice of the New York Jets. That's Bob Wischusen, and he's up next here on the Sports Talkers podcast. Give us sort of a sense of your childhood, how you got into sports, and how it led into broadcasting. Um, grew up in the metropolitan area, basically the New Jersey burbs of New York City as a New York sports fan. You know, like most kids, wanted to be Bucky Dent or Walt Frazier, right? I mean, you want to be the star of, you know, the teams you watch growing up. And by the time I was probably... I don't know, about seven, realized I had no shot. Uh, <laughs> you know, most kids harbor that fantasy until they're like in junior high or high school. Uh, if not college, I was probably in third grade mm. and was like, I can't do this. So, um, but always loved the broadcasters. You know, growing up, obviously, if you're a New York sports fan, you're going to grow up with some pretty legendary broadcasters to listen to and uh, could probably rattle off the broadcasting teams for all of the New York area franchises as quickly as I could rattle off the players um, was just drawn to, you know, that Avenue to be a part of it all, <clears throat> you know, knew I loved sports and wanted to be a part of it. Yep. Uh, but you know, that was when I was uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I was drawn to that as much as I was drawn to the game for whatever reason. I was pretty focused through high school and even, when I arrived in college, that I knew I wanted to be a part of sports broadcasting. Who was the one that pushed you into broadcasting, though, as far as teaching? I mean, at a young age, I mean, I don't know if you know necessarily if it's a career or not. Was it your dad? Who, who, was, who was pushing you towards that? Yeah, it was self-motivated. I mean, I, I, got to, I got to college and day two went to the student radio station and said, do you guys do sports? I want to be a part of this. Um, I would say probably as much as anything. And, you know, you're influenced by the era in which you grow up. Um, my, the, the summer in between my sophomore and junior year of high school was the summer that WFAN first came on the air. So that's where you first start to say to yourself, Oh, wait a minute. Like there's a way to do this where you, you, you don't necessarily have to be the voice of a team to have yep. a life. I mean, you can just talk about sports all the time and, and, uh, and ESPN. I mean, ESPN back in those days really wasn't a vehicle for personalities, it was more a vehicle for whatever kind of wacky live events they could put on around whatever legitimate live events they had. And there was SportsCenter. 
and I guess the personalities were the guys that hosted Sports Center. But there weren't talk shows, there weren't debate shows, you know. So the advent of sports radio really was, you know, kind of an eye-opening thing for me. Saying, mm-hmm. "Oh, wait a minute! Like I know a lot about sports, and I can argue with the best of them." And if you would have asked me when I was, you know, sophomore, junior, senior in college, what would you want to do? Mm-hmm. Play-by-play was not what I would have said. I would what have was said, it? You know, you want to be the Mike and the Mad Dog. Like I'd, I'd love to five days a week, four or five hours a day take all the knowledge I have and my love of arguing about it with my college roommates and take calls and talk to guests and, you know, just have like a, a daily reason to watch the games at night. That would have been what I would have told you my, my career focus was, but I, I gravitated towards play by play after being a talk show host for, you know, about 10, 12 years or so. You said, uh, you mentioned going to the radio station, you went to Boston college. Why Boston college? I, I don't know. I mean, looking back on it, like I went to a Catholic high school it was in a big city. It was not New York. It was something different. It was kind of nearby. I envisioned, oh, it's a four-hour ride. I could come home on a weekend. I never came home on a weekend, but whatever. <laughs> whatever. You have, you have, when you're 17, you, you just tell yourself, this, yeah. yeah, you have this vision of where you think you want to go. And it was great. I mean, it was a great academic school. Didn't know how important or unimportant that would be to our industry. I mean, if I had to do it over again, maybe I expand my horizons and think about someplace with palm trees on campus. Yeah, I mean, probably would. But but having said that, going there, and again, maybe veering off into the career advice part of this earlier than you wanted to, but going there became the entree for me to do the most important thing I ever did to get my first foot in the door somewhere, and that was internships. And you, know, you mentioned the palm trees. You were, you were down here in Miami. We'll get to that as well. Was there anyone at Boston College, though, any of your colleagues that ended up making it after uh, BC? Yeah, I mean, my Joe Tessitore and I were in the same class together at BC, and John Shambi was like a semester ahead of us. Um, you know, so the three of us did a lot of sports radio, like college style, together and hung out what's, a ton together. What stuck out about them, you thought, well, at that time? What did you notice about them that you necessarily thought maybe they can – this these, these two budding stars, which you guys all ended up doing really well for yourself, what were some of the things that you saw in them early on that you thought, wow, this guy's good? I, I, don't, I mean, back then, I don't know that any of us knew that we could necessarily become, I guess, what we've become. I mean, I, you know, we were just college guys sitting around with our other six, eight, ten roommates, you know, yelling at each other about sports. And I guess if someone had a microphone in the room and recorded it, it probably would have sounded a lot like a sports talk show. Mm. But did I know at the time that we were all going to go on to arrive at ESPN together and, and all do you know, I guess working kind of similar career paths. No, I did not know that. How did you get down here to Miami at WQAM? What was that? Like? It, it was those internships. You know, when I was at when I was at uh, BC, I interned at WEEI, which of course is kind of like back then the WFA in Boston. And every every city now has two. Some of them have three uh, all sports radio stations. So um, interning at WEEI and interning at WFAN, both of those internships became the vehicle for like having someone to make a call on my behalf. Yep. So graduated college, both places didn't have anything for me. I was getting ready to start waiting tables. um, Like we all do just to write, to have something to do when you get out of college. And uh, like the day before what was scheduled to be my first solo shift, waiting tables, uh, check with my, the guy who I interned for in Boston. And he was like, I still don't have anything, but oh, 
I just heard in Miami at the all sports station down there, they're looking for someone tell this is who to call. Tell them I told you to call. And that was it. 10 days later, I had a car packed and I was moving to Miami. And the guy that I went to work for in Miami also knew a handful of people at WFAN. Wow. Not only the guy that I interned for in Boston vouching for me, but also then the guy in Miami calling up the people at FAN and saying, hey, I've been given a tip that this is a kid looking for a job. What do you think? Um, the guys at WFAN said the same thing. Yeah. Like, young guy knows his stuff. He'll work his butt off. We just don't have anything or we'd hire him. And really, in our business, that's all you need. You just need someone to trust, someone who you believe is also kind of on the ball and has the same standards that you have in terms of hiring, to say to you, yeah, I'd give him a job if I could. Yep. That's. I mean, if there's no job interview really even after that. Yep. It really is. Tough. You know, hey, I know Eric Spitz and Bob Gelb at WFAN. I know Jason Wolf at WEI. Those guys said they'd hire you if they could. That's good enough for me. You know, networking, you hit on so many good points. The internships, uh, people uh, will get so frustrated. Uh, you know, once you intern somewhere, like I interned for Chris Mad Dog Russo, nothing came from it. It was great, you know, but I didn't get a full-time job. I think a lot of times these people think that you're just going to get an internship and you're going to get handed the keys. It's not how it works in sports media. you got to go through it uh, like you were discussing. And timing is all of this, right? Like you're about to wait tables, you get a call. Did you have a timetable? of possibly pulling out and just saying, I, I'm going to switch out here. And because in the beginning, you just don't get paid a lot and your hours are crappy. Was there any doubt in your mind that, that you might have to make a career change or was it always broadcasting? Yeah, it was always singularly focused on getting on the air. And to be, I guess, you know, candid with the people who yeah. are hoping to get their foot in the door, like you said, the first job that I got in Miami, I was not on the air. They didn't hire me to come down there and be on the air. They hired me to come down and produce the now late Hank Goldberg's afternoon drive time wow. show. So I was his button pushing call screening producer for $7 and 10 cents an hour. Wow. And I was told to keep that amount under my hat because <laughs> there were a handful of people that were at the radio station that hadn't cracked $7 an hour yet, but because they weren't paying rent, they were able to live at home because they were from Miami and I was paying rent. They bumped me up like the extra 30 cents an hour. <laughs> or something. And I tell people this is not 1953. This is 1993. So it is a long time ago. But seven dollars and 10 cents an hour was not a lot of money, uh, even in 1993, much less 2022. So um, so my parents definitely threw me a couple of bucks to help me out, which was great. But really, my, my the entire thought process was just get your foot in the door somewhere and you know what if you work 60 hours a week all of a sudden seven dollars and ten cents an hour the extra 20 hours a week becomes 10 whatever an hour and now you know you actually are making a couple of dollars and yep. i didn't have anything to spend it on you know so i was alone down there i didn't really know anybody so you know i just i made it work but that my entire mindset was just go down and kind of put one foot in front of the other and yep. keep on going to work every day. And, and, and that's the advice that I give young people, just get your first foot in the door somewhere and just be in the building around the decision makers and right. be a convenient option for them when they have a hold of Phil. That's how I got on the air. All of a sudden they needed a Sunday afternoon talk show or a weekday morning update shift filled. And rather than pay some hairdo television highlight guy, $700 to come in and host a show on the weekend, I mean, they were paying me $7.10 an hour, even if it was time and a half. 
I was I could fill a four hour shift for them on a Sunday afternoon for like 48 bucks. Unbelievable. You know, so I became a very convenient, cheap option. And it was almost kind of when I look back on it, like a paid internship. I was inside mm. the walls and I got an opportunity to get on the air because I was cheap and I was there. Did you run into Stu Gotts at that time? I had Stu Gotts on and no. he said that he was the executive producer for Hank Goldberg on here as well. I was gone before he arrived at WQAM, which wow. was the radio station at that time. Again, the only sports radio station in Miami, Fort Lauderdale back then. So, uh, yeah, I was there. Like, I got there summer of 93 and left right at the end of 1995. So it was about two and a half years that I was there. And so, yes, Dugats definitely came in after I left. Were you surprised by the reaction by them about uh, his passing? There wasn't a lot of great things to say. What was your experience like with him? I, my, I have no idea what anybody's experience with Hank was other than my own, because I was there briefly. Right. Hank was awesome for me. Okay. Like as much of like, a, like an uncle kind of slash father figure as you could have. Like he walked down the hall on my behalf multiple times and was like, look, this kid knows sports. Like he can do shows mm. and vouched for me and knew he was going to lose a producer and would need to have that hole filled, but didn't care. Like told them, on my behalf, what they thought I was, what he thought I was capable of, and was no, nothing but encouraging and super proud uh, of myself and Chambi as well, Abug, that, that we both were able to then go on and have the careers we've had. Um, I always tell people there's like 50 people that during the course of your career go to bed at night thinking they had a lot to do with your success. And there's really only seven or eight or whatever that did. Yep. And Hank's on that short list. Like Hank's one of those guys that could absolutely say, hey, you know what? That guy wouldn't be where he is today if it wasn't for me. Yes, he is on the list of people that I absolutely look back at the early part of my career and say, oh, yeah, like that, that's a guy that pushed buttons on my behalf and vouched for me and helped me get on the air. Wow, that is refreshing to hear. I guess just coming up through the broadcasting ladder, what were some of the things that you struggled with early on that you really tried to focus on improving uh, from an on-air perspective? Well, I mean, from a play-by-play -play standpoint, sure. my my DNA was in radio. I mean, all of my play-by-play -play early on, the Jets, which I still do to this day on the radio, uh, I was at Madison Square Garden doing the Rangers on the radio and some Knicks. Um then when I had an opportunity to go to television, that it's a big transition for someone who's died in the wool radio to understand that on TV, like you can lay out, you can let the pictures tell the story. You don't have to talk it to death. And when I first got on the air, I definitely, at least from a television standpoint, talked the game to death. Mm. Um, mm. So I would say that's probably when I look back on any adjustment I've had to make the biggest one that I, I, I hopefully accomplished. I mean, it, you know, I, don't, I haven't worked with too many analysts that have shot me stink eyes that they can't get in most of the time at the end of the game. <laughs> they're pretty happy. They got all their material in. Um, so, yeah, but I, that's, uh, you know, I do think, though, it's much easier to go from radio to TV as a play-by-play -play guy than the other way around. Yes. Like, yes. if you're raised on television and the pictures have always done the talking, and now you're asked to go to radio and be the picture painter, I've heard a lot of TV guys really struggle mm -hmm. when all of a sudden they're on radio and you're listening, you're like, oh. This is a TV guy that hasn't done radio. Um, I think the adjustment of laying out and backing off is much easier to make than now realizing, wow, like I have to be aware of everything and say everything on, you know, on radio if you have a TV background. Can you share some core values for younger broadcasters that we can follow just as far as uh, what we can work on 
um, just from an on-air perspective? Yeah, I mean, I would say, <clears throat> you know, number one, again, if you're like that high school or college kid that wants to get in the business, don't turn your nose up at anything. Don't think you're a failure if the first job that you get isn't right where you want it to be or it's not on the air. Take anything. Just get in the loop. Be a part of the machinery. Get to know the decision makers. And then be respectfully aggressive. Like, go have that heart-to-heart with your boss and tell them, look, like, I know you hired me as a producer, but just so you know what my career goals are, like, I, I want to be on the air. That's very fair to say. Mm. And to have those goals and be aggressive about them and, and go after them. But don't think, you know, in any way, shape, or form that somehow, you know, you go to Syracuse to be a broadcaster and your first job, you're not on the air. That's okay. Just be, it, it, it will and can happen for you, even if you're not on the air at first so i think a big part of it is those internships and the getting that first job and then you know if it's a play-by-play thing when you're first getting started i would just say prepare the heck out of the game like go into a football game a basketball baseball game whatever with a bunch of stuff to say about every single player on the field mm-hmm. knowing you're going to use 10 percent of it that's also okay but to have that chart be a comfort security blanket in front of you where then it just relieves a lot of the tension of doing the game when you know you've overprepared. Yep. Because now you've got all the information in front of you. Now you really can go in and just have fun and do the game and work the information in as best you can with the full understanding that you might get, if it's a good game, you might get 10% or less in of what you've prepared. But don't ever go into a game where it's 15 minutes before kickoff. You're looking at your chart. You're going, man, I really, I could have put more time. Like I could have, what if this guy makes a play? I don't really, don't, like, don't allow that doubt to creep in right. because, you know, then you'll call the game afraid of the, the ball might find the wrong guy and you might not be prepared for it. Yep. And like you said, you, you hit on it. I mean, you can prepare for hours and hours. You might only use 5% of it. A lot of it is improv, uh, yep. you know, with just you don't know what's going to happen in the game. And that's the beauty and, of broadcasting. And one other thing Gary Cohen told me way back when I first started to even practice play by play, he said, you're going to hate it. No one likes to do it. Everyone is their own worst critic. But get a tape of everything that you do and go back and listen to it. Mm. Like take some time to listen to what you did. Uh, The same thing. Like I know everything is kind of digitally stored now. So this is in the days that, you know, where there were like reel to reel tapes or cassettes that went machines, (laughs) but making sure you do have a file stored away on your computer of everything that you do. Um, You know, John Minko at WFAN forever, an update guy, also a play by play guy. One time he told me, he's like, look, if you don't have a tape of it, it didn't happen. Like, don't think some boss was out there riding around in his car and might have caught your work. So, like, if you're really proud of something, make sure you've got the tape of it to send around to would-be employers at some point. Because if you don't, if you don't have tape, then it didn't happen. But then also go back and listen to yourself. That was always great advice from Gary because you do pick up on things where you're like, oh. Man, that's a crutch phrase. I keep saying the same thing over and over again. I didn't even realize I was doing that. Yep. I need to adjust that. And then that becomes something that you're able to do to become better. It's just, to, you know, again, you're your own worst critic. It makes you better to listen to yourself. Let's talk about one of your many broadcast partners, uh, but one that has rose pretty quickly, uh, especially on ESPN. Dan Orlowski, what makes him special, Bob? I mean, he's got a lot of boxes checked. Um, his knowledge of the game is encyclopedic. Uh, there's, you know, I always say this about guys like a Dan, Josh McCown kind of fell into this category as a quarterback as well. 
people make fun of quarterbacks that in a 10 or 11 year career play for like seven different franchises. But think about why that happens, especially as a backup quarterback, because no matter how many times there's a franchise in the NFL that all of a sudden doesn't have a spot for you. There's some other coach in the NFL. That's like, you know what? I have room for a smart guy in my quarterback. Yep. Like having a guy like that next to my starter while we're watching tape, throwing his thoughts out there, noticing things, pointing things out like that's Dan. You know, so Dan sat in the same room as, you know, the Shobs and the Staffords and guys like that and kept on getting jobs and kept on getting hired, even though he was an O for everything quarterback as a starter in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but like whatever, he's smart quarterback coaches, offensive coordinators. They wanted him to be part of their room. You know, I work with Brock Ewart, who sat in a room with Peyton Manning for a couple of years. Um, Brilliant. Like a, like an it's like taking a master's game. class. Yeah, it's like taking Absolutely. a master's class. Yeah. So guys like that, the rooms they've sat in, the players they've played with, and offensive coordinators they've worked with, and and QB coaches they've had, um, encyclopedic knowledge of the game. Dan's a good communicator. Um, great at the telestrator. Great at taking a play that has fifty elements to it, boiling down what the average fan can understand. And he's incredibly enthusiastic about it. Like he loves it. I mean, I've worked with guys that are former players that get into broadcasting and you can tell they're like, all right. I mean, I was a great player and, yep. you know, I've got all the money that I need and this is okay. This is kind of fun, but don't think I'm going to burn the midnight oil to like, no, like Dan, I mean, every single time he has a chance to be on the air at ESPN, he's on the air. Um, he really has a passion for it. So I think that that formula really works for him. I mean, he's, incredibly knowledgeable has an ability to explain it and loves doing it and you, you add all that up and he's just a good dude yeah like he's a fun he seems like a good dude around. yeah i mean <laughs> and that translates like that comes across on the air i yeah. think viewers relate to him because he seems like you know he's super self-deprecating like he's all about you know i made it somehow a decade in the nfl with like a <laughs> 6 40 at the combine you know i mean he's like i said he checks a lot of boxes he's great to work with all right. Big thanks to Bob Wachusen for joining us today. Thank you guys for listening. Really quickly, rate, subscribe, review. We know that. But also, we've got one request from you. We just need you to take 10 minutes to take this survey of the website. Give us a feel for what you like, what you don't like content-wise. We want to give you and provide you the best entertainment information that we can do as a website so if you can take the time that would be much appreciated we will talk to you next thursday make sure to follow me on twitter at sstrom underscore and at bsm staff have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next thursday here on the sports talkers podcast thank you for listening to the sports talkers podcast with steven strong a reminder that each episode can be found on itunes spotify and most podcasting platforms to stay up to date on future episodes visit barrettsportsmedia.com.